This episode is going to be a bit of a break from the norm, or whatever norm such a brief running series could be said to have. But hey, let's see how this goes. Hi, it's M. Welcome to episode 5 of Miscellany Media Reviews. Today, I want to discuss some musicals. Not like Hamilton, sorry to disappoint. And a lot of people probably just left. Okay, fair enough. Back when I was in high school, a musical was released based on the movie Shrek. Yes, that Shrek, and I don't mean they took the idea of an ogre going to retrieve a princess and ran with it. Nope. It is the musical adaptation of the actual movie Shrek. And now I don't know if I should pause for laughter or not. Particularly considering the cultural status Shrek has right now, and maybe had even then. But I'm serious. Someone has made a musical based on Shrek, and it's called Shrek the Musical, and it was on Broadway for a while. And hey, the music isn't so bad. The song I Know It's Today is actually super catchy. And since we're talking about musical adaptations whose songs are far catchier than they have any right to be, this year there's a musical adaptation of Frozen, which actually makes sense when you consider how much music was already in the movie, but there's also a musical adaptation for Mean Girls, and oh, we can't talk about seemingly pointless and questionable musical adaptations without mentioning Spongebob Squarepants. So okay, hard pullback for a second. This shouldn't be so alarming, right? I mean, look at the size of the musical world in a post-Hamilton age, where the concept of musicals have fully hit the popular imagination. How can you not expect there to be a lot of musicals? And by virtue of it being a long list, you are going to have some great ones, some good ones, some okay ones, some duds, and some that make you want to scream, WHAT WERE YOU THINKING? Unless you live in an apartment in the city, and you've recently learned that the walls of said apartment are fairly thin. But let's take another step back, because sometimes walking backwards helps more than moving forwards. Where did I get this list? Why, dear listeners, those are the titles that appear somewhere on the 2018 Tony Award nominations list. The Tony Awards, of course, are the top American awards for musicals on Broadway, which is the best place for any musical to be. And if you're now on the verge of a cold sweat with a very specific question on your lips, the nominees for the best musical this year are The Band's Visit, Frozen, Mean Girls, and SpongeBob SquarePants' The Broadway Musical. Look. I can't presume to know with any degree of certainty what your reaction is to that list, so maybe you don't care. But I know what my reaction was. And I also know that after a moment of thought, after a moment of dwelling in that reaction, my meandering brain did what it does best and led me back to a memory from a long time gone. Back to when I first heard about Shrek the Musical. Shrek the Musical. Oh, my word, even saying that doesn't feel right, first hit Broadway in late 2008. It has a history prior to that date, sure, but no one would be unnerved by news of a literal backyard production of something so absurd. As for me, in late 2008, I was in high school, not really interacting with anyone and not really thinking about anything that wasn't my fantasies of some faraway place. I remember that I first heard about it in band class. During those first few minutes when everyone's still getting settled in, 
like the bell has rang, but instruments were still coming out and are being assembled. And if you're someone who moved fairly quickly like I was, you were just stuck waiting. You could have been warming up, but instead you were waiting. I don't remember who asked, or what their voice sounded like, or how it might have come up beyond just being someone's random thought. Was it a segue from a conversation about the school musical? I don't know. I can't remember that day or when the day might have been. In fact, I remember very little about my time in band, which is odd because in the moment, when I was graduating, I couldn't imagine moving on. I couldn't imagine life without it. I couldn't imagine letting it go. In my mind, though, this question just came to exist, seemingly on its own. It was just birthed spontaneously and made its way to its recipient like whatever happened before didn't matter. Did you hear there's a Shrek musical? Someone asked our band director. I think it was a male student. On second thought, the voice in my mind is male. I remember the band conductor scrunched up her nose, which, if memory serves, was the only answer she gave. But if I think about it, I'm almost ready to swear that she muttered something under her breath. I just can't be certain. And human memory being as fickle as it is, I can't be sure about much of anything, can I? I just know that this reaction is well within the realm of possibility. It fits well within her character, a character I'm still loosely associated with to this day through the wonders of social media. Even the person she is now, maybe the person she's always been, would react that way, whether or not she did notwithstanding. And just to further drill the point of uncertainty in, I can't remember exactly what my reaction was. In my mind, just based off my personality at the time, there were two possible reactions. One, I either silently agreed that Shrek was a lowbrow subject for a musical, though at some point I must have listened to the music, and I have no idea where that would fit in with this proposed timeline. Wanting to be the best, needing to be the best, also meant liking the best things and having the best taste, which meant having high standards. On the other hand, I had a tendency of rejecting some of her ideas by sheer virtue of them being her ideas. It was the closest thing to a rebellious streak that I had with this suspension of my normally obedient and docile demeanor when it came to her. Despite being some sort of authority figure, she just ran out of whatever respect I could muster, and in the resulting emptiness, my silent defiance came out. Both possibilities are equally compelling. I really can't tell you which one is the truth and which one is a fanciful reimagination. I thought about this memory a couple years ago, seemingly randomly, and my uncertainty about my own response made me dive into the issue. What do I really think about this? Now, truly, and why do I think this way? I dropped the question shortly after I asked it, with everything that just tends to come up in my life I had other things to think about. To top it off, while I loved musicals, it just didn't feel like I had a dog in that fight. And like I said, it wasn't like I didn't enjoy the music from Shrek the Musical, and if you think back to the first episode, I firmly believe, both then and now, that something doesn't have to be perfect or a product of genius to be enjoyed and engaged with. It's also how I justify the existence of this podcast. 
but now the question has been made relevant again by this year's Tony Award nominations, and while this may be a gross simplification of the process, SpongeBob SquarePants, the Broadway musical, is probably going to win something, and when we hear that, we may have mixed feelings about it. Even, or maybe especially, those of us who don't have a dog in this fight. So, in preparation of that, or maybe to reconcile that fact, depending on when this gets posted or when you, dear listeners, are listening to this, let me go back to that unsaid question first brought up by Shrek the Musical and the band conductor's reaction to such a notion. Is this really a problem? Are musical adaptations of pop culture phenomenon or other seemingly vapid productions problematic? Initially, I'm inclined to say yes, because it does seem cheap, doesn't it? Or vapid, or a quick way to make some money. It's like merchandising or sequels of debatable merit. Like, there's a long list of steps studios need to take when they have a successful intellectual property in order to maximize their profits. And making a musical of that property is on the list, but, like, maybe it's an optional step. It's something you can do, but not something you have to do. And when you look at it that way, it's easy to be jaded. After all, it's just about the money. Greed is just distorting something otherwise beautiful to the benefit of a group that doesn't need the help. If you believe that, let me offer my sympathies. The abundance of branded merchandise has embittered my soul too. I've spent far too much of my money on it just to make my godchildren happy. I don't even know the characters half the time, and still I have to buy this stuff. But these things make them happy, so I choke down my discontentment in the moment, only for it to stew and then come up some other time like this podcast. However, there's a belief I've earnestly held for some time that seems relevant here. It wasn't born from this thought, it just fits nicely. Namely, intention and effect are surprisingly distinct things. I say surprisingly because who really thinks about it? Who takes the time to break down something so simple when they can be socializing or sleeping or not doing that? But if, even after a bit of thought, that doesn't seem right, can I offer you some sort of example? A storytime-esque one? So, you're in line at the local grocery store. They had a particularly great deal on insert your favorite food here. That was so tempting, you made a special trip to the store for that item. So you don't need a full cart, just a hand basket. And you're not trying to mentally juggle a long list of groceries. You just have the one thing. Now, you're standing in the checkout line carrying your basket behind this person who has a pretty neat t-shirt on. It's rather plain, except for the intricate logo across the front. You didn't see it at first. Not until she turns her body so she can unload her cart. The bright emerald green border around the logo is what caught your eye first. The stiff lines draw the gaze to the golden blue emblem in the center. It's striking and beautiful, and you keep telling yourself that you have never seen anything like it before. So, seemingly without reason and certainly without much conscious intent, you lean forward and whisper to her, I like your shirt. Those are just words. You don't mean anything by them. And even after they leave your mouth, you aren't sure why you said them in the first place. It was just something you did. You meant nothing by it, but you did it anyway. 
She smiles and thanks you. With that, we need to shift our perspective from you to her. Something that you can't do in an actual moment, but something we can do in a mental exercise like this one. She's been having a rough week. Not just a day, nope. Whole week of problems, stresses, and crying sessions. That shirt she's wearing? It's for her favorite podcast. It's a visual representation, only thing that can bring her joy right now. She's working on dealing with that overwhelming sadness, she's working through it with a therapist, and she's actively trying to be in a better place mentally. It just takes time. She'll get there, she knows she will, but it will take time, and the podcast will hold her over until then. Unfortunately for her, her partner doesn't understand this. Consequently, she is mocked relentlessly for her perceived weakness and for her devotion to this thing that brings her joy. She shouldn't take it personally, but she can't help it. Your little comment, something you just found yourself saying, gave her a much-needed sliver of validation. A small top-off to the well that she has to draw from in order to keep going. It will help her, even if you never knew or meant to do so. To bring it back to the subject, sure, these musicals may be cash grabs. They're probably cash grabs. But the intent of those behind them doesn't matter so much, or it doesn't need to matter. Because they don't necessarily have to influence our reception of these shows. Regardless of why they exist, we can still enjoy them. Genuinely. So, second point. These cash-grab musicals, if that's the intention, take up theater space and divert resources away from other potential productions. Original productions made by people who have plenty of other ideas for more amazing shows that can only come to be if the first one takes off, which can only happen if they get these resources that, that are currently being used in these, quote, lesser shows. Fun fact, I have heard this same argument for Shakespeare productions. Not the experimental ones that really use Shakespeare as a sort of safety net while they're trying out new techniques or ideas, but, you know, the standard, super straightforward productions. Those are the ones that people tend to be critical of. With that being said, this destructive serendipity can strike in both situations, either in Shakespeare and Shrek. Which makes it valid, right? I'm still not sure. Look at The Amazing Sensational Cultural Wonder Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Miranda. What needs to be said in this context, maybe, is that the show is still running. Yes, it hit Broadway in August 2015, and it never left. It's expanded to tours and runs in Chicago and London, but it never left the Richard Rogers Theatre. However, we would never say that Hamilton committed the same sin. Why? Well, because people want to see it, you might say, repeatedly, and in many ways, they need to see it. Because maybe that's just part of being culturally literate in this day and age, and maybe it's to encounter this increasingly relevant part of American history, or maybe Hamilton's style is the perfect midwife for the next generation of composers, keeping the art alive. The arguments to keeping Hamilton a few days shy of forever are there, and pretty obvious. I hear them, but can these two thoughts coexist? Can you condemn these other productions for being a drain on a limited pool of resources and still exalt the extended runs of other shows? Shows that have so thoroughly saturated the popular consciousness that their benefits have clearly already been realized? 
Well, of course you can, you might be saying. You might be accusing me of comparing apples to oranges in the smuggest way possible. Fair enough. Sometimes I sound smug. It's a habit from those high school days when smugness was my shield to cover up my own inferiority complex. But clearly, these two situations are different, you think. So you aren't holding contrary beliefs. Why? What sets these apart? Well, because people want to see Hamilton. Everyone wants to see Hamilton. And look, I want to see Hamilton. In some ways, using Hamilton in this argument might have been setting it up to fail, but it's not like no one has ever enjoyed these other shows or that prior to its release, no one wanted to see a Shrek musical or a musical based on SpongeBob SquarePants. And as for the rest of the arguments I'm anticipating, Shakespeare has its historical significance, still comes under fire, and if Shrek or Spongebob is the only character that could get a kid to pay attention to a stage production, then that's how you unlock the musical fan or composer lurking in the crowd. Sure, the scaling is different. But that may be a wash when you factor in just how long these different shows are running. But from what I can see, there is still a difference. What is it? Prestige is the only one I can see, and... That might just be because this story is coming through the filter of someone I knew in high school. Who was that kind of person, not even in a defensive way. Musical adaptations of children's movies or shows just seem juvenile. No pun intended. Is that even a pun? I mean, they're literally childish. Objective fact and not a subtle jab. That's just how it is. So these inclusions, then, would, in theory, taint whatever they enter. They make musicals as an art lose a little bit of their credibility, of their status as a high-class activity, or their image of being a bastion of human perfection and achievement far above the plebes. After all, a small child's finger painting can't be on the same platform as a Van Gogh piece, but unlike other mediums, in musicals there isn't an easy way to linguistically differentiate between different qualities of productions. Look at it this way. If I just saw a musical, I could be talking about Phantom of the Opera, Les Miserables, or Shrek. Sure, maybe you can evoke the creator's name or the genre, but Andrew Lloyd Webber's newest show is an adaptation of the 2003 movie School of Rock. Does he just get a free pass because at his age he's earned the right to mail it in? So, point being, these shortcuts, in my mind, don't signal any sort of quality. The fact that Spongebob Squarepants makes it to the Tony Awards just seems to prove that with musicals, it's, it's all or nothing. Yes or no, this or that, it's a very strict binary. But does prestige have to matter? No, in part because there's something arbitrary about it. When you say something is fancy or prestigious or high class, you aren't identifying a specific trait or anything innate to the thing. You're classifying it, and, and by some extension, you're classifying yourself. So, to me, that's what this is really all about, and this holds well with my memories of the band conductor and the story I opened up with. And while it may not be the issue most people have with musicals like this, or, or maybe people don't have an issue at all, it's a broader mindset I think is worth discussing. This is just a convenient venue for the talk, one that doesn't make the conversation feel so high stakes or make rebuttals feel so personal and biting. 
The problem some people have with Shrek the Musical or SpongeBob SquarePants the Broadway Musical is that they challenge or outright crush the illusion of musicals being a higher art form or as being above everything else. A pinnacle of human achievement, a purified human creation. At the very least, it's supposed to be above the previously discussed consumerism. Side note, good luck keeping the theater lights on with that attitude. When you bring in these musicals, undoubtedly, you lose that prestige or the perception of that prestigious nature. You don't necessarily cheapen the art form, but you do dent the image. And you know what? I fail to see how that's worth losing sleep over. I'm certainly not going to, even if Spongebob takes a little golden statue back to his pineapple under the sea. Do you know why? This may hurt to hear, but musicals are struggling, at least relatively speaking. It's not always a profitable endeavor, and in an age when money talks, this silence is a great way to get bulldozed over by corporate America. It's actually a fairly complicated thing, and I don't have the expertise to lay out all the reasons why musicals may be outright dying and sprawled out in their coffin, but there is one thing I can say with absolute certainty. It's not Spongebob or Shrek hammering in the nails. The best way to kill an art form is to just let it die. Art thrives through engagement. So maybe you let it die because it's not profitable. Maybe you let it die because no one knows how to do it anymore. Or maybe you are locking it away just to keep that holier-than-thou or better-than-you image. That's why musicals were on life support until Hamilton pulled everyone back in just by being so good. Musicals were being left to die for the sake of people's ego. They wanted to have this thing they could hold up almost like evidence that they were better than everyone else. They could say, see, I enjoy this thing, and this thing is above your thing, ergo I am better than you. I have more reason to be around, my existence is more justifiable than yours, and I don't need to deal with all these insecurities that are actually plaguing my existence. Which is faulty logic. But you don't care about making a good argument. You care about being right. You care about being perceived or recognized as better, not about being your best self. But all forms of elevation come at some sort of price. Usually, it's through your effort, either in the actual climb or in the steps that lead up to the climb. And if you aren't ready to do that, then you're going to have to throw something onto the fire. And in this case, it was the thing you claim to love. Pro tip for anyone who thinks that way. If you love something, you have to set it free. Let it go out into the world. That's the only way it can survive. Okay, so another difference beyond just not having one set thing I'm talking about. And this is going to require another explanation. The executive decision was to push these episodes to be at least 30 minutes. Have I done that? Shh, no, no, don't talk about that. It's an arbitrary cutoff point anyway, but it felt right. Like, if I'm going to promise you an episode every Sunday, I want it to actually be an episode. 30 minutes seems like a good solid length for a podcast like this, but that leaves me prime for a predicament that has come up in this episode. When typing up the script, I knew it had no chance of hitting that 30 minute mark. The last couple scripts have looked like they would, but then nope, disappointment, but it was close enough. 
what you heard just now had no chance of reaching that mark. It was something in between, something that could have been an episode, but not in a way I could reasonably or responsibly stretch out to meet the requirement I set. So, easy solution. How about I connect two short, almost mini-episodes together to make a bigger one? Sounds good to me. Also, it means I can push out this next mini-episode which feels connected to the past couple episodes in a rather important way. So great. With that said, I'm now going to talk about the Mountain Goat song, The Mess Inside, from the 2002 album All Hail West Texas, which was the subject of the Night Vale Presents podcast, I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats. The album was, anyway. Each track got its own episode, and The Mess Inside was the ninth episode, because it was the ninth track. Because I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats was a Night Vale Presents production, I had to give it a try, and it's good. Not something I'd count down the days for. In fact, I don't think I ever made a mental note about its upload schedule. I'm not sure why I didn't like it so much. Maybe it was just the format? It starts with a playing of the original song, and then Joseph Fink of Night Vale Presents and the Mountain Goats singer-songwriter John Darneal discuss the song and an aspect of the creative process for a little bit. Then the episode's cover artist enters a potentially redirected conversation, and then they close out the conversation by playing the new cover. After some reflection, I think my problem is that each section is too short for me to settle into, which is a half-hearted critique because I don't think that can really be changed without compromising some larger aspect or intention of the podcast. Whatever, I guess. It's still good. Okay, that's the brief explanation, nor the context. That's the setup. If this explanation ends up longer than the actual review, I'm going to feel so stupid when I'm editing this. And at this point, I should probably warn you that this may start to feel like the type of AP literature essay that a student writes when they are running out of time in the exam session, and they know that it is better to submit a half-baked, not well-cited essay that just goes over the broad themes, rather than like a paragraph of what could have been a perfectly assembled AP essay. Sorry if you're coming off of your own AP testing season, but the memes were good. I'm shrugging right now, you just can't see that. Okay, I'm not helping my point anymore. Going loosely off of my intent versus effect opinion, I'm going to pull something akin to death of the author or disregarding authorial intent in favor of the text itself or one's own interpretation of the text. I don't subscribe to that idea as a guiding principle or as appropriate in all contexts. It just feels appropriate when it comes to songs. There's just something serendipitous about the way we usually encounter songs. These encounters are so abrupt and sudden that there's no real time or opportunity for you to stop and acknowledge what the songwriter might have meant or intended. In fact, the closest you might get is fawning over his voice and making a mental note to check out the rest of their discography later. These encounters can be so sudden and unexpected and with the listener so unprepared for the connection that's about to be forged, there's little room for discerning intention. All that's readily available is what's in the listener's mind and heart. Or at least, that's my experience. Even in this particular example, when I heard this in the context of a discussion about the artistic process and personal meaning, I was still caught off guard, in many ways. In the ninth episode of I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, the cover of The Mess Inside is done by Amanda Palmer. 
And this cover in particular struck me because Amanda Palmer performs it with such emotion and intensity that it would be fair to say that her performance suffered on a technical level. But it was a reflection of how the words made me feel, and it was nice to have a kindred spirit. Now to the song, finally. The song's speaker is addressing someone else, and you may be inclined to think of this someone else as lover. Fair enough. The line, I wanted you to love me like you used to do, would lead to that conclusion. Lover is in some ways a sort of default when we think about love and loving connections and the need for such. We, and I'm not sure how to define that collective entity, have exalted romantic love and put it above all else, but justified or not, it's still not the only type of love out there. So as I see it, the speaker could be talking to almost everyone with whom there's some sort of emotional connection to. Anyone in their life that they have valued. And to that conversation partner, the speaker recounts all the adventures they have been on together, all the places they have traveled to, and all the good memories associated with those trips. But at the same time, they were running from something. Running from the problems that came in their day-to-day life. In traveling, they left behind a house full of arguments and disputes. In theory, they went to happy places, but they didn't find happiness. They didn't find the peace they were looking for. They still had their arguments. The speaker still didn't feel loved like they used to be loved. And the speaker knows why this attempt failed. Because the mess wasn't in the physical embodiment of their house. It wasn't in the walls they lived in. It wasn't back home. It wasn't in a place they could flee from. Rather, the mess was inside them. And as they move about, this dysfunction came with them. Inescapable. It was inescapable. The past was so wonderful and so good, and its loss was difficult to accept. So is the true source of the dysfunction of the present. Oh, how better it is to embrace the lie. I tried to make it clear in the last few episodes that I don't blame the world that bore me for the trials that I've experienced. It was a disconnect, or it was a mess inside of us, whether that was a mess in a collective sense or the distinct messes we were carrying in ourselves. Bringing up this song is a chance to say that no relationship was perfect, not because of any actions any one party took, which is potentially being redundant or it's a reiteration, but I think it's a useful one, because it's a reiteration that allows me to take on whatever responsibility is rightfully mine. And it also allows me to say that my relocation did nothing to fix these problems. It just made them less relevant. Because we weren't facing them every single day. Because we weren't facing each other every single day. Even growing into myself and becoming a better person, becoming a better version of me, did little if anything to help. And you know what? I also think I need to share the resulting lesson with you all. One that the song doesn't explicitly say, but one I needed to hear at several points in my life. And if you were in that camp too, then here you go. At some point, you have to stop cleaning. You have to stop trying to pick up the mess inside of you. Or the mess you have with other people. You can't keep cleaning, not just for your own sake, but because at some point, what you're doing is no longer cleaning. It's just making a different type of mess in a different way. Mess is a relative term, after all. I mean, I have a bunch of stuff strewn around my desk, but it's not anything I can't navigate with ease, 
so I wouldn't consider it a mess, though my mother disagrees very vocally whenever she visits. And as I am now, I wouldn't consider myself a mess, not all the time. I have my moments. But a lot of people from my past lives would disagree with that and wouldn't like the person I've become. There's no way to reconcile these differences. There's no way to fix this mess without creating more and likely worse problems. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing or look us up at miscellanymedia.online. Thanks. Thanks.